Welcome everybody to Unleashing Your Great Work. I'm here today with Jimmy DeResta. He is a maker, an artist, a designer, and a video producer. He's the host of the hit Netflix show, Making Fun, and he's been a guest builder on the NBC show, Making It, among many others. Jimmy is a well-known YouTuber with more than 2 million followers and helped found the Catskill Mountain Makers Camp with Austin Handel. He is known in the maker community as the godfather of makers. Welcome to the podcast, Jimmy. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, I, I've been really excited about this for months, so yes. I so appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Yeah. So I'd love to start where we always start, which is tell us just a little bit about your great work. I grew up and I was always an artist. I was always a maker. It's It, it was just, it was almost like, <clears throat> you know, I always use this as an example. I say when you see someone like Steven Tyler and, you know, from, from the rock band or, or Ozzy or any any Mariah Carey, they were born to be that. And it's such a visible example for everybody to understand. They were born to be a rock star, whatever it was. And I feel like I was born to be a maker because all I've ever done ever since I was a child was make things. And it's, it's the only job I ever had was making things for money. I, I never had the typical job of like a paper out or working at the soda shop like a kid would do. Always had a, the job of making things. So I always just leaned into that. And if that was my calling in life, I learned early on, like, that's my calling. Like, that's what I was meant to do is to make things. I mean, I don't, I'm not big on past lives and, you know, too, I don't get too spiritual, but if any of that exists, I feel like this is what I was put here to do. Or, you know, this vessel is carrying somebody else's maker journey, maybe, because it's all I've ever done. And it's all I'm ever driven to do. What does it feel like when something visits you and says, make me? Like, do you get a vision of something? Is it like a problem you're trying to solve? Like, how does it come about when you create something? Well, it's it's a slow process. Sometimes I, I taught for 24 years at the School of Visual Arts, and I always try to impress upon my students what works for me. And that is you get, you get a gut instinct. You get that low-hanging fruit immediately hits you. When someone says, make me, uh, for instance, I just delivered two giant, styrofoam cups for a client they wanted them as a show like kind of a uh marker for the front of their nightclubs in miami because they give out drinks in these styrofoam cups and so it was kind of a gag gift or gag build rather they hired me to pay and they paid me to make them but my first instinct was like they want giant styrofoam cups so my first instinct is like how do i make them and like the first gut instinct might not always be the right one that's like the low-hanging fruit you get or, or even when a concept, when someone says, make me a logo and this is my business. And, you know, you get the first, you want to you want some sort of conceptual idea that is conveyed. And you get that gut instinct and you write it down or you just park it in your brain. But it's really important to take a day or two or three or four to marinate on all the other options. Mm -hmm. An amateur maker or, or a new maker might immediately take that gut instinct and make it. And then it's low-hanging fruit. It's the same thing that somebody that didn't take the time, two or three, like I said, I say this to my students. I said, you're all new young makers. Take the time. That gut instinct might be the one, but don't trust it. Not until you do all the work and then you can trust it. You say, you know what? I've done everything I could. I've explored all the options. I've done all the Google searches. I still feel my gut instinct was the best one. And it's very, very, very infrequent that it is the best one. You'll always come up with a better one 
most often or other choices. And so whatever it is, whether it's a conceptual logo or it's the technique on how to build something or the best material to use something, I always say, you know, just park your gut instinct and then figure out something to choose from. And that's really been my process. And it's funny, the other day I was working on something and I got to a point where I was like, this feels like the right way to go, but it's kind of icky. You know, I was, it was just a technical connection on a metal thing I was working on. I was like, this feels like the right way, but if I do that, these will get damaged in transit because it's the type of thing that has to come and go a lot. It's like a thing that gets set up for parties. And it was a floral stand and a complicated, expensive floral stand. And I was like, these are going to get bent if I take them. So I thought about it and like, the conscious, I set the conscious, subconscious brain to work on these ideas. And because I really take a lot of input, a lot of inspiration from visuals, Google searches, taking just a s- simple curiosity when I look at other things similar, uh, you know, you might find the answer in something completely different. So it's important to just be curious about everything. And then a few days later, I had a better solution. Whereas my first gut instinct was to go this way, but I didn't trust it. And then in my mind, I was like, I don't trust it, but I can't see any other option right now. I was like, you know what? This job is not rushed. I don't need to deliver tomorrow. Let's sit on it. I have another few weeks. So I sat on it and I came up with a much better solution, which is, it's not important to describe what that was, but it's that idea of that gut instinct. A lot of new makers, or I say young or immature, and I don't mean that to sound derogatory, but immature people who just haven't had the the time and to study the and experience lots of interesting challenges. Yeah. You know, a lot of people stay inside their comfort zone, which is so, it's so cliche, but it is so true. You know, the only way you're going to get better, like for instance, I'm on day three of my Peloton and I'm good, at, <laughs> like, good, I'm good at getting out of my comfort zone. So I did two warm up cycles or beginner cycles day one, day two. It's like, you know what? That's it. I'm over. I, let me do another one. So I did another beginner on the same couple days. And then last night I sat down, I was like, and I just saw, I was like, let me do that 30 minute workout as if I've been on the bike for a month. <laughs> and I was like, this is going to, kick my ass. Did it? It did. And I didn't have any water <laughs> around. I got on the bike without any water within reach. And I'm like, I haven't, I haven't like yet, I haven't quit a program yet in the middle of a program. So I was like, I can't be my fourth program. I can't just walk away from it. I got to keep going. And so I powered through it and I didn't quite, you know, I wasn't too high up on the leaderboard, but in my mind, I'm like, this is outside my comfort zone. I haven't built, this should be like day 10. I'm on day three and I'm, I'm already at like a 30 minute full body workout. And it's going to kick my ass. And if I have to quit in the middle, instead of quitting, I'll just lower all the parameters for me, you know, and I'll go down the leaderboard and, but I will finish. And so the next time I do it, I'm like, okay, I made it through coming in like 10th on the leaderboard of like 20 people. And I was like, okay, average. And I did good. That's good. So I was outside my comfort zone and I didn't die. I didn't fail. I didn't give up. What's interesting about that is like when you're brand new and you think, what there is, is a gut instinct, right? What there is, is my artistic eye or my aesthetic or my problem solving base. And what it sounds like you've developed over the course of a lifetime and with a lot of curiosity and a desire to be very expert at this is like a trusting a gut instinct for sure, if you need to, but also believing in your own next level, right? That another idea will come. Oh yeah. That's really, that's a really good way to put it. It, I always trust in the unknown. I always trust that I've never even said that out loud the way I just said it, but I always trust in the unforeseen and the unknown. Cause I keep saying I'm 55 now. I'm fairly successful. Most of my bills are paid. I don't really see a time where I might go broke, but that's as a freelancer, that's always on the table. Um, But 
I've been able to solve nearly every solution to some mm-hmm. extent, some right. better than others. So the unforeseen is something that a lot of people don't trust. And mm-hmm. to trust the unforeseen, and I, and I I really, honestly, I I always look back at my, I always take a quick inventory of my experience. I'm like, this, I don't understand what I'm doing here. I don't know if I'm going to solve this. But in 10 days from now, this job will be done and delivered and it will have been solved. Yeah, exactly. Just like every other one I've done. Yeah. Well, you know, it's you, you are comfortable with the unknown, but I think what you trust is your own brain. Yeah. That your yeah. brain in any circumstance is going to problem solve and think and make connections and find new paths. And you don't know what that new path is, but you know, it's going to show up. Yep. That's it. And I try, and you know, when the, let's say it's down to the wire and like the best solution, you know, is not the best solution. You know, you just have to, you just have to deliver where a lot of amateurs or, or, you know, people un, unprofessionals, I might say, or, or people that they might go, I, this isn't, I have to just call up and buy more time. And then you start looking flaky, you know? So I always say done is better than perfect. You know, I think it's really important to keep that in mind because when people's safety are involved, when people's like, human safety is involved, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. But if it's if it's an aesthetic, mm-hmm. and you know there's a, there might be a difference of opinion of the aesthetic or the color or the this done is better than perfect, and you could always fix it later. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about you know I started following you because of making fun because I have all right, thank you. I have little kids. Oh great! <laughs> and we watched all of them a few times. Mm. They thought it was hilarious. No, that's good to hear. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So we're really hoping for season two. Hopefully we are too, but it's it's, 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 (laughs) the strike while the iron's hot. The iron has gotten pretty cold, so we don't know what's going to happen at this point, but there's been another, there's been a new resurgence in the show. You know, we're all like getting followers and stuff like the show kind of goes in waves. Well, it's an interesting, what I like about that show. Well, what, what's coming to mind in terms of the conversation we were having is it seems like that show doesn't give you the time to do what you were describing, which is like, let me think about it. Cause like, um, I mean, the way it's set up on the show, you can tell me what yeah. it's like in real life is that yeah. like kid says, make me a large, uh, you know, Rochambeau <laughs> kit or whatever. And then there you guys are like cutting out steel or whatever. Um, yeah. So what's that like? What's that? Is that another? Well, that's another, it's a great, it's a great exercise working on TV. And I've worked on several TV shows, maybe seven or eight at this point with me making things on camera. And so there's a really important thing that I had to instill in the other guys. And they they got it right away. Like, these things don't have to be perfect because what the camera picks up is one thing. And they're not being delivered to the person. They're not being delivered to the child in the show because of COVID. That was, the design of that whole show was based around COVID. That's why we had kids brought in on Zoom and we picked up their ideas. So everybody was pre-interviewed. And the ideas did come from those children we picked. The one thing that was 100% spontaneous was the kids that I didn't know were getting picked. I never met the kids that we were going to pick. I only knew the idea, like, dinosaur kids next so we we're going to go with the dinosaur so but all me improving with all those children was all spontaneous and it was a lot of fun and uh i mean they they tweaked a lot of the 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 punchlines in the in the edit of course but uh the kids who were chosen were all pre-interviewed and we knew where we were going to go for each episode but the producers wanted a step-by-step layout of how we were going to make the thing or how i was going to make it as the lead designer and I, I would tell them I have a vague, loose idea that I can't write down because I don't want to get locked into anything. Then you're going to lose the spontaneity. And they they were really upset with me. <laughs> they really, they're like, well, you can't give us a step-by-step of how you're going to make it. I go, I'm not really sure. I said, I, I'm just going to trust everything that I brought to the table at this point. Right. Every episode will have something. 
It mm-hmm. might not be perfect. I said, but for, this is the bigger reason. This is more business reason mm-hmm. than, than art theory. They weren't paying me to design these things before the camera started. Every television negotiation is very tough. Mm-hmm. The talent always comes on underwater, not where they want to be. And so now we've negotiated for my talent fee, the property fee, and that's it. And now they're giving me homework months before the show airs. I was like, I'm not doing this homework. If you want to pay me, you know, $1,000 a day, I'll do all of this. Mm-hmm. But until you pay me $1,000 a day to sit down, design, lay out everything you want me to lay out step by step, I am not doing that. Yeah. And the producers, you know, and it's, the money isn't coming from the producers. It's like all above them. And they're like, well, we understand, but we're doing a lot of the legwork. I'm like, you do the legwork because you have to. I was like, I trust my instincts that when the camera starts, I'm going to come up with something that's good. And after that conversation, just to put their mind at ease, I made a couple of maquettes that we ended up using on the show, like the maquette of the dinosaur. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And the maquette of the chopping guy, which we sh- I, they wanted me to make it over on camera. <clears throat> and the maquette of the, the punching glove, which I made like literally days before those episodes aired. But the dinosaur I made first because that was like the first big episode. It was going to be the pilot episode. So I made the dinosaur like a month before and they were all like, their mind was put at ease to see. I go, because I, I literally had a phone call with them. And then like an hour later, I sent them a picture of the dinosaur. They're like, you made this since we spoke? I was like, yeah. <laughs> yes, go, trust me. I'm I Jimmy DeResta. <laughs> I said, I can do this. I said, I, I totally have faith that we're going to do this. And you're going to enjoy the spontaneity of me figuring out things in the moment. And, and you're not going to take advantage of me because you're not using me and not paying me because I won't let you because I have other things to do. You know, until the show starts, I'm going to just loosely be involved with some of the logistics. I'm not going to sit here and design everything full mm-hmm. full tilt. And then knowing the episodes between me and Paul and Derek and John and Pat, we mm-hmm. all had visions of what these things should be. And we would all throw our two cents in. You know, we all had the list of what we had to make. They looked at me, the producers looked at me to do like a layout. And that's when I said, I'm not going to do that unless you guys want to give me a whole nother salary, which I know you don't. So just trust in the process. And these guys that you brought in, did you bring them in? Or were they, were you sort of like put together like a boy band? I mean. Uh, It's a very funny story. Me, Pat, Paul, Derek, and John, we're all friends from our maker community. We, We all developed a friendship, mostly through this Facebook group. And we all live in the Northeast, except for Pat lives in Montreal. So he lives five hours North, but we all developed a friendship. I mean, and it's not just us five. It's like, there's like a hundred of us, but us five were together on December, 2017, when there was a photograph taken of us in one of Paul's props, Paul made a big giant Adirondack chair. And that picture went on Reddit. And in the picture, it's a big giant chair and me, Paul, Dave, Patrick, and John are, are all in the chair. So we all look like five big little kids because it's really oversized. And that was the picture that Paul put on his Reddit, Paul Jackman. And uh, a casting agent saw that picture and said, who are you guys and what's what's your story? And that's how, the, that's how that began. So that was like in the beginning of 2019. And then the process, Paul sent a, a collective email. He's like, guys, you guys want to be on TV? And we all wrote back, no. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we went back and forth and then a small world story, which is why, you know, uh, Barry Katz always says connections. Barry Katz, is a, he has a great podcast called Industry Standard. It's all about the television business from deep behind the scenes to in front of the camera. Great, great podcast. And Barry got me my first TV show. And Barry Katz, Barry Katz would say, he always says connections, people, connections, meaning, you know, always leave a wake of connections, whatever you do. And so 
long story short, this casting person, Lauren Stevens, worked for Intuitive Entertainment. And she was representing Intuitive Entertainment. And so Lauren Stevens called me and said, you know, she we all got on a collective email chain at one point, eventually. And Lauren said, can I call you? Of course. So we got on the phone. She said, do you know, uh, um, do, do you know so-and-so, uh, Kevin Dill? Lauren said, do you know Kevin Dill? And I said, yes. Yeah. She, she goes, Kevin Dill is my boss. He owns this production company. Now go back 20 years. Kevin Dill was the person who directed my very first TV show. Oh, really? So a few minutes after I spoke to Lauren, Kevin got on the phone. I haven't talked to Kevin in 20 years. And he says, mm. Jimmy, what are you doing? I've been watching what you're doing on YouTube. And I like this group of friends you hang out with. Would you consider doing a show with us? And so he kind of softened when we were all being like, nah, nah, mm. nah. we're on YouTube. <laughs> we don't need TV. Yeah. Because you know, TV doesn't pay. Even like Netflix, it doesn't pay very well. Wow. And, you wouldn't and, expect that. No, it doesn't pay very I mean, if you were like hit show and then you start getting money. I'll tell you an interesting story um, that I heard in a podcast recently. Do you know, like, you remember Dan Cortez from MTV Sports? Yeah. So Dan Cortez was a was an intern at MTV, and he pitched that idea of him hosting a sports show. And they said, no, you're an intern. We have no interest in putting you on TV. Hung around, paid his dues at, at MTV like a year later. He gets contacted by MTV. They're like, hey, we're doing a great new idea. We had a great idea. Would you come in? We want you to audition for the idea. And he's like, okay. He comes in and it's like, you would be hosting a sports show. He's like, okay, that's my idea that I gave you guys two years ago. And they're like, no, it's our idea. But do you want to host it? You're going to have to audition for it. And so he went from being like, an, he was still as an intern, as I recall. And he went and he actually interned. He, he had a audition on stage in front of all these people for like some sequence to get on the show. Anyway, he got on the show and his pay was only $400 a week, but he was still an intern at MTV. <laughs> so he had to book his own travel wow. and he did and then he got a gig. He got a he, because the show was popular. His salary stayed the same though. And then he got a he got an endorsement deal from Burger King for like 400 or $500,000 for like a yearly long campaign. And MTV's like you can't take that. We don't want we don't want to endorse Burger King. He's like you're not endorsing Burger King. I am. And like, yeah, well, you wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't for us. And he's like, you can't hold me hostage for $400 a week for a successful show and not let me bear the fruits of this tree. And that he went to, they actually, they, they settled some legal standard at that point where anybody on a show, you can't be held hostage from doing endorsements. I'm sure there's contractual regulations and stuff. But anyway, so that that is that's the allure of TV. So if our show was super successful, although we, we make more money as YouTubers, technically speaking, the pay, we're really, we're really investing our time and energy for the opportunity to get a GMC truck deal or, uh, you know, a, a Total Boat TV commercial or whatever, any other endorsement for any one of the five of us. And so that's really where the time and that's, that's the allure of TV, you know, when it comes to what we do versus whether we should or shouldn't take a shot. And, and by the way, several different ideas were kicked around. Initially, the idea before COVID became an issue, we were going to go meet a fan that knew one over all of us, and we were going to build some wish list for a fan, some some big wish. It was going to be kind of like the Fresh Air Fund where we go and satisfy a client's needs. And then we were all on board for that. And then we got a call from they said Net. It was originally for Discovery. So Discovery eventually passed on the show when COVID became an issue. And then shortly right after, Netflix picked us up. We didn't even have the idea for the kids thing yet. So we never actually had a deal with Discovery. This whole pitch was for Discovery. And then when they passed on it, Netflix picked it up right away in early 19. And then we kicked around several different ideas. And then it was the producer, Mike O'Dare, 
who came up with the idea of Shark Tank for kids. And that's that's how that whole thing came about. I like it. He said, you guys are like five big children. I want to see you guys act like idiots because he watched all of our social media and we're all just big kids having fun. Yeah. And he says, I don't want to lose that spirit by making you guys do something that doesn't seem right. And it seems like you guys had a ton of fun together. We had a great time together. You know, we, we, unfortunately we've been, we've, we've gotten a lot of slack as obviously the faces of the show for a show with five white males with beards. And it's like, there's, it wasn't there any opportunity for diversity and it's like we were just picked to do the show. We, our, our group of friendships was picked to do the show, and you know, we get picked on by you know the, the the woke mob for not inviting somebody that we don't know just simply because of they don't look like us. And I, we all felt that that was very unfair because we're just a group of friends that got a TV show, and any group of friends can get a TV show regardless of you know what your whatever your life choices are. And, you know, whatever you were born into, anybody can get a show. And there's several shows for everybody. So everybody looked at this as like the end all show. Why did they give it to five white guys? And like, we would, the friends that were chosen, it's not how it happened. So it's interesting. Um, you sort of just described the two sides of the, the allure and sort of the downside of the YouTube life, right? Like on the one hand, you get total control. And I really, I was watching, I don't know, some video you made or were in or something where you were talking about when you first started your career and you thought maybe you wanted to be an art director and you realized like this corporate world where you have to like do paperwork is like not the thing that you want to spend yeah, time yeah. doing. I was always inspired by like Warhol and, and Picasso and, you know, they always seem to just live the life of leisure, but I was seeing all these photographs from late in their life. And then I was very, I was really impressed to find out how much work Warhol did in his early days. And obviously Picasso was doing realistic paintings before he helped develop cubism and, you know, but I, like I said, as an art student, I was seeing it. I was an art student in the eighties, in my in my uh, undergrad is at School of Visual Arts, and so I was studying all these guys and being like, you know, wouldn't it be nice to just make art and sell it, regardless of? You know, I felt that I, I, and I'm still in it like this much because it's good money. But the client trap, working for a client, can you make me this big giant thing that I need? It has to be. It has to be just the way I want it. Like, Okay, I, I technically am now. I'm just basically like a human three D printer for their vision, and I do it, and I get paid well. And if I can get some content out of it, where I can teach some technical aspects of how it happens, that's good for me and it's good for my fans. But obviously, the day to day is just like make whatever I want, whatever I need, and yeah. show off the technical aspects of that, and also the creative process at the same time. Right, which is what I find you know interesting because I always think when I think about being on YouTube as a life choice, as a career choice. It always, I always immediately go to sort of the mob mentality of the internet. Like somebody's not going to like something and then you're going to have to listen to that. You sort of described both sides of that. On the one hand, you get to make things and that's what you do for a living. Yeah. On the other hand, you're sort of at the mercy of the, of the internet. So how does that Only if you read the comments. Ah. <laughs> right. Think about how many people you walk through in a day that go, look at that asshole. <laughs> right. When you walk through the supermarket, like, look at the shoes this idiot's wearing. Like, he he walked out of the house. He looked in the mirror and said, okay, that looks good. You know, how many times a day do we do that to other people? Here, people are making the conscious decision to put it in writing <laughs> for all the world to see. Which is an interesting choice, yeah. Yeah, so the my brother's daughter is becoming very popular on TikTok. She's an attractive young TikToker girl, and she's getting some endorsements. And 
him and his wife started reading the comments. I said, don't read the comments. You don't want to know what people say. And he said, I guess you're right. He says, just don't read them. And, you know, I kind of, I kind of slowly peruse through them. And if I see like some sort of negative or like, you could always tell by the first word, it's like absolutely, you know, never, like if you see the word never, no, ugly, bad, you know, you see these words in the first couple of things. And I just like, I'm like, okay, that didn't pass the, the instant test, you know, the, the microsecond. The other thing too, is like, this is my party. I'm inviting everybody to come into my retail shop that I'm having a party in. Everybody comes in. If there's somebody comes in with a sour attitude, you get deleted, you get kicked out of the party. So if you're in the comment section, I try, I, I jokingly say, I don't really read them, but I take a close look at the ones that are pretty vicious because those will invite other people. They're like, oh, if that guy's going to be rude and, and, and inappropriate, that makes it safe for me to be rude and inappropriate. So I immediately delete the ones that are pretty rude and pretty inappropriate. I just get rid of them. I don't respond to them. You know, I see a lot of like, uh, I see a lot of people on Twitter or Instagram, for instance, they'll screen grab a bad comment and like their response. And then now they're in a, it's it's wasted energy as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Well, and I like, um, I like your overall sort of gestalt of interaction with people um, that you want to just be a nice person and be considered to be a nice person uh, yeah. or a good hang, I guess. Yeah. Is what that's yeah. Called. yeah. Yeah. That was, <laughs> that's what Barry Katz would tell me. Yes. Yes. I saw that. That's his, that's his thing. Yeah. And very like, I've seen a few different, you just mentioned one where it's like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to waste my energy interacting with negative comments. I also mm -hmm. noticed that you're like, well, I don't really want to talk to the camera. So I'm going to just do these super fast, no talking, no music yeah. videos, which is sort of your way of doing things. And I like your efficiency in the world. Thank you. Thank you. That that really came out of me watching the beginning of YouTube and seeing wanting the meat and potatoes and not the fluff. And so when you watch someone's YouTube channel and you know people do get, and I'm not saying I haven't also been uh you know uh, guilty of this some people get uh, they they like seeing themselves and they're like oh i'm gonna i'm gonna talk about what i know and they get on the camera and they're like this is the way it works and this is the way you do it and, this, and then you get a little you get a little full of yourself and you realize you should have edited out a lot of those sentences if if maybe the whole entire segment and then just go right to work and he says you know the the the, the fatality of uh, bad camera work or bad filmmaking is I'm going to take this pen and take it apart and put it back together and show you how that works. Now watch along. And then I just do exactly what I said I was going to do. And if you just jump right into doing it with the pretext of I'm on Jimmy's channel who takes things apart and puts them back together. Right. I'm already halfway. I'm already on the train. I don't right. need to be invited on the train every single video. Yes. Uh, I'm on the roller coaster. Let's get mm -hmm. on. Let's just pull the lever. So that's yes. how I, that's like how my videos are. You're in the car and we're just pulling the lever because you know me. If you don't know me, it takes you one, two videos to instantly get in the car and be on the car. And and that, again, that's just efficiency that I've developed because I'll see a talking head like we're looking at right now at each other and I'll just scroll till I see a pair of hands on a wrench and I'll be like, that's <laughs> what I need to know. Right. Now my part has begun. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's like every recipe on the internet where they want to tell you everything about how to choose a good avocado. And I'm like, tell me how many avocados to add to my guacamole. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I just, I just give me the meat and potatoes and, and then a lot of people will, not a lot. I mean, like I said, now my comment section is, is almost 99%, 99 and change percent 
positive and people, you know, it's like a party of all my friends and everybody's, you know, slathering me up with comments or giving me, co- I, I like when people give me constructive criticism and say, Hey, you know, I worked at a job and we would never do it that way. We would do it this way. And I would, you know, like, okay, he's on the edge of being slightly rude, but maybe it's just his delivery. And I'll be like, that's actually a good idea. Thanks buddy. And that's it. It's like, I appreciate what you do, you know? And then like, they realize they might've said something a little coarse. And I'm like, I appreciate what you do. Thank you. You know, like the fact that I didn't go, well, I do it the way I want. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. You know, I, I don't do that because there's everything is, has multiple ways of being solved. And, and I try to remain open to new solutions and, and new methods. Right. And you seem like you're a fairly relational person too. Like you, you like to leave a wake of contacts in the back. You like to look yeah. at your friends. You want to have yeah. good relationships with your uh, fans. And yeah. I want to talk about um, you as the godfather of makers. Talk oh, to me boy. about like, <laughs> <laughs> um, how have you, how do you think about bringing up sort of the next generation of makers behind you? Like, do you think about that consciously or is it something that you just happen to be brought into? First of all, I was called the Godfather by somebody I don't know who. I can't remember who came up with that, but I didn't come up with it. Just see if your fans are like, just thinks he's the Godfather. <laughs> Screw this guy. No. <laughs> so my fans have started calling me that. And you know, it's an affectionate term. So I appreciate it for you know for the meaning of it all. But it sounds a little it, it makes me a little embarrassed. But I realize I I I have a I obviously have a responsibility because I am on a kid's show. I have hundreds of family friendly YouTube cha- videos. And, and that's funny when I meet a child somewhere and about like the parents will usually tug my shirt and go, are you the guy from the Netflix show? My son recognized you. I was like, yeah, and I'll come over and the kid gets shy, hides behind the dad's leg. And it's really cute. And then, uh, you know, so I, re- and then I'll say to the family, I'm like, you know, I'm on YouTube. I have 700 family friendly videos to watch on YouTube. They're like, oh my God, I had no idea. I had no idea. So, and, and so that's a nice new audience that I'm opening up. And I think it's, I have a responsibility to be family friendly because we want to entertain dad while his daughter's sitting on his lap. I mean, I've heard that. You're like, I love that you, I am love that you don't curse because I could sit and watch a video. I mean, I might curse here and there, but you know, I make a conscious effort not to. And I could watch a video while my daughter's sitting on my lap at breakfast and it's, and she enjoys it too. And now my daughter wants to learn how to weld, you know, like that is so important. Like just planting those little seeds and, when I was a kid, I'm 55, there was a show called Zoom on public television and it came out of Boston, Mass. I remember like they'd always say, you have to send a letter, send it to Zoom, Boston, Mass, O, two, one, three, four. They sang this song. And it wasn't until years later, I'm hanging out with my buddy. I'm like, what's your zip code? You're in Boston. He's like, oh, two, one, three, four. I'm like, oh my God. Um, so shows like Zoom, Electric Company, where we first saw Morgan Freeman and you know a couple of other actors, like and Sesame Street, of course, like shows like that planted seeds for me to be who I am now. So I think it's really important to feel the gravity and the responsibility of being on Netflix for kids. And, you know, me me and Derek and and Paul and John and, and Pat all realize that, you know, the importance of that, because we were all inspired by everything like us that came before us. And so it's it's... It's a big responsibility. So I'm not going to go out there. I just kind of had this conversation with my brother because he kind of got himself jammed up with his mouth. And, you know, whenever I'm around people that are saying controversial, unacceptable things, I walk away. And when I'm with people that are used to saying those things, I'm like, don't say any of these things you're used to saying around me because I don't want to be part of it because I don't want to be pigeonholed into, you know, I don't want to get canceled. I don't want to get canceled for something stupid. 
Right. You know, it's 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 an interesting world we live in, and, and you really just got to do the right thing by your fellow human being, and you'll be fine. You know, one of the things I loved about making fun, which I have to say, outside of your Instagram feed, which I think I follow pretty closely, um, <laughs> I've watched a few of your YouTube videos. Not much of a maker myself, and what I really liked about it, and I feel like my children got this sense too, was like, until you're a maker, I would imagine you sort of think things fall out of the sky fully made you know like here's right. here's some scissors i bought at the store and then watching you guys make scissors with the little like i was like there is a i'm looking at scissors right now like there is a little nut and bolt or whatever yeah like in the scissors that's how they're and oh they really are heavy like, i feel like i learned a lot about just like the natural world yeah. In a way that people aren't really getting in school because science education isn't really about that. Right. My children, when Graz was making the big monster hands, mm-hmm. I forget why he was making them. They were like, oh, mom, I could make those monster hands. I'm like, if you had Jimmy's whole situation <laughs> out there, maybe you could make monster hands too. Right. Maybe the first time they really were like out of nothing could come something of my hand. And that's that's sort of the theory of my 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 YouTube channel is I want to see everything has to have transformation. It might not be explicit in every video, but you start out with a raw material and you end up with a something. And one thing that I always tell my students and I try and tell when I'm in a group is like one thing that's important to realize, look around you. Every single thing was flat stock material before it was a 3D object. Nearly exactly everything. Exactly what we started realizing. And and if it's like, for instance, it could be a chunk of metal that was then reformed like clay into some. So everything starts out as like a lump of something. But in 90% of the cases around you, everything started out as a sheet. A car is made out of all flat sheets of metal shaped into the shape. The desk I'm at right now, the whole thing was flat stock material or, or trees, flat sticks turned into bed sheets, everything everything's either a lump of clay a rod of metal or a flat sheet of fabric rubber steel wood so designers builders makers in general everyone's just a package designer we're all just packaging our concepts in all these shapes and you know the, the simplest example is packaging that comes around an object and that object you pull that out and that object say you know is a new backpack and that whole thing started out as a flat leather taken from a cow, you know, whatever it is. And just, I'm just reminiscing about me opening my mail, (laughs) but everything started out like, here's a beautiful wallet I bought on Amazon a few months back, started out as flat stock. And you know that in a way that a lot of people take for granted. Mm -hmm. And yet because of you, more and more people are realizing that. And I think from a sustainability perspective, from a, you know, like if you know how things are made, you can't pretend that when you throw it in the trash, it just disappears because it's not, right. you know? Right. I think it's a really interesting perspective for that you sort of, I don't know if you espoused it exactly, but it has made me think a lot about it. No, that's great. That's great. And, and you know, the idea too is I worked with, uh, I worked with a, a, a magician. I used to help him develop some of his uh, illusions years ago in the 90s. My friend Jeff, Jeff Sheridan, you could look him up. He's actually, he was one of the first mime magicians. He kind of, he was like, he would do magic without talking. And he kind of wore black and really interesting guy, amazing artist. And he would always, he was a surrealist artist. And he would always say, everything could be something else. And, you know, he says, you want to always take something and try and make it ascending. You don't want to make take something and make it descending. And he used this example, which he read in a book or something. 
and he said, uh, you know, the teacher says to the student, the student sees uh, the student sees a dragonfly and pulls the wings off and says, look, it's now it's a pepper. And the teacher goes, no, 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 no. Take the pepper, put wings on it. Now the pepper is a dragonfly. I mean, it might not be the best example, but <laughs> I remember he told me that once. And it and that stupid little thing that he told me once when we were sitting over coffee, it always, it's the little tiny thing. It's like, let's take something that you wouldn't otherwise see any magic in and bring magic to it. Uh-huh. As opposed to taking something that already inherently has magic in it and just make it something different. Right. You know, different isn't always better. Different sometimes is just different. It has to be different and better. And, you know, what is better? I mean, that's obviously in the eye of the beholder, but, you know, you want to make things have a certain sex appeal. There's like a certain sexiness to it that you want to bring to everything you make and do and design. Like an ice pick. Yeah. My sexy ice picks that I make. This <laughs> yeah. one right here. I was like, what? <laughs> when I first saw it, I was like, do I want an ice pick? I don't know. Maybe I do. It's a stupid little pocket object that I made for myself for many years. And everybody started asking me to make them one. And I was like, you know how to make it. You you get the stock from this website. You get this pick from this website. You get this from that website. And I was like, no, 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 you make it. We want you to make it. And I was like, I wanted to rest an ice pick. I don't want to make ice picks. <laughs> and then I started <laughs> making ice picks and now I've sold thousands of them. Thousands. Amazing. Yeah. Well, you know, I want to encourage everybody to come and learn about you and the things that you do. So if people uh, did you. want to, you know, get to know you and support your work, what is the best way for them to do that? Well, you could start by looking for me on YouTube. You could Google my name, Jimmy DeResta. And I'm the guy that writes his name on everything. And it, it has become a joke because in the beginning there, when I first started on YouTube 11, 12 years ago, there was a there was a channel called Break.com. And there was another one. I can't remember the other one, but they, they've faded into oblivion. But they were taking everybody's content off of YouTube and just repackaging it on, you know, under like stranger names. It wasn't necessarily my channel. I remember they even called me when like, I got an email. It's like, hey, I run break.com. We would love for you to put all your content on there. And so I started looking around. I'm like, all my content is already here under wow. the other names. And they're like, we'll, we'll sort that out for you. We'll get all ready. We'll get rid of all that. So, but in the beginning, my videos didn't explicitly have my name inherently throughout the video. So anybody could take three or four of my videos, edit them together in a medley, and then me- edit edit them with something that might be their own personal video and then make it seem like it was all them because I never showed my face. And so I was like, if I'm not going to show my face, I at least have to show my branding. And that's why I started putting my name inherently on the tools, the table, the mat that I'm working on. I pick up a razor blade, my name's spray painted on the side of the handle of the razor blade. And this way I wouldn't always have to worry about saying anything. And I wouldn't always have to impress the video with my visual because if anyway, and then they want to knock it off, they're going to cut my face out anyway. Right. And so those two channels were doing that. And it really upset me. Obviously, you know, nobody wants to get stolen content. But so now if my content is getting stolen and reposted somewhere, people will see my name and be like, who is this idiot that writes his name on everything? And then they Google me and then they find me and they go, you know what? I found you on some Arabic speaking channel and all of the, this whole voiceover in Arabic, but your name was written on everything. And it made me Google you. I found your Facebook page. It led me to your Instagram. Now I realize you have YouTube video and you're the same guy that was on the Discovery Channel show I watched when I was a little kid. You know, so that happens to me more and more now. I bet it does. That's smart. My brother's a caricature artist. So when he's in New York City, he does. He lives in Ohio. But when he's in New York City, he's walking down and sees the people set up on the sidewalks doing caricatures. Yeah. Like, that's mine. That's my pick. Why are you saying? Because they have examples of their work. But it's oh, work. yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's it. That's why <laughs> he's so going to do like, he's got to do what Hirschfeld did. Put his, his, put the word Nina in it seven or eight times. Did you know, you know, Hirschfeld? Hirschfeld no, was a. 
Hirschfeld was an artist who always did the cover of the arts and leisure section. Every every Sunday was a drawing by Hirschfeld. He passed, but he was he would always do a caricature of, say, the Broadway show might have been, you know, Hugh Jackman. So he would do a, his own stylized caricature, very very stylized, really sexy and very unusual. He would pick like a feature of any human and like really accentuate it, all line inked. And in throughout the drawing, he would write his daughter's name. So there was a beard. His daughter's name was Nina. And I remember as a kid getting, the only reason I wanted to look at the leisure section was arts and leisure was to see the, because in the corner he would write Hirschfeld 10. And that would mean his daughter's name is in the drawing 10 times. Oh, and he would find them all? Like yeah. a Where's Waldo? Oh, yeah. so interesting. Uh, yeah, it's just a dumb little thing that, you know, most people wouldn't even recognize. I remember some dad's friend told me that when I was a little kid. And so I remember going to art school and always seeing the leisure section, grabbing it. And I'd sit there and I'd circle the Ninas on the picture. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, we will put the link to your YouTube channel and your Instagram and all, of the, all of the places. And I just want to thank you so much for your time. I really you. enjoy talking to you. Thank you. This was great. I really appreciate it. It's nice. It's nice getting asked questions outside of the maker community because mm -hmm. it, it forces me to answer things that I haven't actually answered. And even though they were subtle differences, they were, they were very different in, in a big way. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening today to Unleashing Your Great Work. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. And make sure you check out my book, Great Work, Do What Matters Most, without sacrificing everything else. It's available everywhere you get books. See you next time on Unleashing Your Great Work.